welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Every week we gather and we uh, typically read the Bible and study it and hope to hear from God. So I'm going to invite you to find a Bible if you have one near you. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 18, and we're in a series called Eat This Book, which is our part of a Lenten journey that we're on towards Good Friday and Holy Week, which is coming in a couple of weeks. Uh, the church calendar, if you didn't know, begins in Advent, and in the darkest time of the year, we move our way towards Christmas, and the light of the world coming into the world in our midst and living among us, this is called the season of Epiphany. Every year about this time, we try to take back an hour and make it darker, because it's more helpful to the calendar, but you can't stop it. It's, that's what's happening. Um, so if, you're, if, if you woke up uh, late today, be grateful for a second hour at, at Awaken, 11 o'clock, right? Um, Epiphany gives way to Lent by way of Ash Wednesday, and Lent is this intentional journey that the church has made for thousands of years towards Holy Week and towards the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we've been doing that in all kinds of ways as the church for thousands of years, and um, we are in the Gospel of John in this part of our series, and we've made our way through the baptism of Jesus, Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana where he turns water to wine. John says this is the first sign of his gospel. We've talked about John, uh, Jesus healing the man born blind in John 9. We've looked at the, the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11, which is the seventh sign before the final sign of the resurrection of Christ. In chapter 12, it begins the second half of John's gospel, and in that we find Jesus turns his attention towards Jerusalem and the cross and what's ahead of him. Uh, he has his last supper with his disciples. He prays his longest and most fervent prayer that's recorded in John 17, that we, the church, might be one as he and the Father are one. Peter cuts off a guy's ear, which is kind of interesting. Uh, there are moments where I wish I would have been there in the biblical story. That's one of them. Can you imagine if that would have happened? Wow. Um, last week, we looked at Peter denying Jesus three times, and this trial that begins with Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, and now moves to the location of Pontius Pilate's home in the morning. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. But before we do, um, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but often Christians um, use language that no one else uses. Have you ever noticed this before? Like Christians will say things and it's just sort of in passing and nobody bats an eye when you're like among Christians. But if you were like an outsider looking in, it would be weird often, the things that we say. So um, this is an all play question. What are some of the words or phrases that Christians often use that go unchecked in our midst, but maybe from the outside looking in are a little bonkers, a little bizarre, right? Words or phrases, just shout them out. Go ahead. Washed by the blood. Yes, that is weird. Like, you might need therapy if you, like, right? Washed by the blood. What else? Born again. Yep, absolutely. Burning bush moment. Had a burning bush moment the other day. Yeah, yeah. Like, from the outside. What are you talking about? Yeah, okay, what else? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Pray for your enemies. Yep, yep, some doozies. A couple more. How's your walk? <laughs> Somebody first hour said quiet time. Like, who says that? You know, Actually, covenanters, historically, how goes your walk? That was one of the questions we always asked each other. How goes your walk? One more. Make it good. Say it again. Discernment. Discernment. Yes. Ooh, 
Discernment, yeah. Sanctification came up in the first hour. Yeah, there's lots of things that we say that are a little odd, like we don't use that kind of language in any other context. And in this passage this morning, we find two words that are, I would say, at the top of that list of maybe out of vogue or not really a part of our everyday vernacular. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 18, stand if you can, and we will read from the text starting in verse 28. John writes this, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came, to bring, uh, came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate, the original postmodern. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release one to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, they shouted back, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Pray with me if you will. God, as we turn our attention to the word and uh, this story, grateful, thank you for the faithful men uh, who wrote this book down and the ways in which you inspired and worked through them to, to capture uh, this story and testify to it. Thank you for the way in which your word is alive and active. And so uh, we receive it today with, as, uh, with open hearts as much as we can. And we entrust ourselves to you during this process. Holy Spirit, speak to us, uh, challenge us, change us, transform us, make us into the people that you intended us to be, I pray. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Kingdom and king. Two words that you probably haven't spent a lot of time using lately. Does anybody know the largest kingdom that ever uh, was on the face of the planet, that the world has ever known? The largest kingdom the world has ever known. Anybody know what it is? It's not Rome, I'll tell you that. Say it again. I can't hear you. The Mongols, good, 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 good guess, but that's not it, sorry. <clears throat> it's the British Empire. The United Kingdom is the largest kingdom the world has ever known. Um, over 13 million square miles of land, more than 22% of the land mass on the earth, and over 458 million people in 1938, which was more than 20% of the world's population, the British United Kingdom. Now, unless you're currently waiting for season three of The Crown on Netflix, <clears throat> which is really good, you most likely have not talked about <clears throat> kings or kingdoms lately. Uh, and... Because, like, in, especially in America, like, what do kings and kingdoms have to do with our daily life? Uh, not much, if we're being honest. 
excuse me. I heart awaken. <clears throat> and yet, the Bible seems to talk about it a lot, especially in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak about the kingdom of God, Matthew, uh, Luke and Mark. And then Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. All the time, Jesus is incessantly telling stories about the kingdom of heaven is like this, or a king went away and left these things. He's talking about it all the time. <clears throat> So Jesus is constantly talking about this kingdom idea and, and kings, which is why Christians are, seem to obsess about this idea, because Jesus talks about it, right? What would Jesus do? And if Jesus does it, we should do it, even though nobody at Wells Fargo is talking about kings and kingdoms, right? Um, interestingly, John, this gospel, doesn't speak a lot about kings or kingdoms. The only two times we get like the kingdom of God reference is chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus when he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, which is uh, something about a spiritual idea, a spiritual kingdom. And then in this passage where he talks to Pilate and he says, this kingdom, the one I'm talking about, the one that I'm bringing, is in contrast to the other kingdoms that you might see around you, which has a bit to do with politics and how kingdoms come to be. So here we are in John, and Jesus is now on trial before Pontius Pilate. Now, if you don't know, Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor. At this time, there were around 40 provinces that were ruled uh, or in the, in the Roman kingdom, empire, and they were ruled by prefects, governors. Pontius Pilate is probably one of the most famous, of course, because of the trial and the crucifixion of this guy named Jesus. So Pilate is a representative of the empire. He is a representative of the kingdom and the king, of Rome and of Caesar. And he begins a conversation with Jesus in this passage we just read, where he asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? Which is a particular question, but it's also not. I would submit to you that this is a question. The question behind the question, or the, the subtext of what's happening in this passage, is a question about power and control and security. It's a question that is bigger than that because empires and kingdoms rule the world. We know this. And whoever is the king of the kingdom has the power and the control and the security and the upper hand, and whoever has that writes the history books. Since the beginning of human history, we have been talking about fighting over power and security and control. We've been killing each other for as long as we've been recording our history as humans over power and control and security, usually of land and water and food, but other things as well. The caliphates of Islam, the Turks, the Ottomans, the Romans, the Portuguese, the Spaniards, the Brits, the United States of America, kingdoms, empires. Now, you and I, we're not a part of the largest kingdom that the world has ever known, but we are a part of the most powerful kingdom that the world has never known, the most powerful empire that the world has ever known. And it's interesting that the Bible, for the most part, is written from the perspective of the person on the bottom of that, who's being oppressed by that, who's being afflicted by that. And it's interesting, as Western 2018 Americans, a part of the most powerful kingdom on the planet, it's easy to miss some of the central themes of the text when you're in that position. Just a little note. That's not in my notes, but just a little something for you. We might not be a part of the largest kingdom, but we are a part of the most powerful kingdom. And you might be saying, Micah, this isn't a kingdom, it's a democracy. Like, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, this is a republic under God. And to that I would say Rome was as well at one point. And in the same way that empires and kingdoms are always talking about and trying to secure power and, and security and influence and control, we are still having those conversations every day. 
You may think like a kingdom and a king, like what does that have to do with today? And I would suggest just watch the news and the subtext behind all the things you see are about power and security, homeland security. How do we secure our borders? How do we ensure that they don't kill us before we kill them? And control. We're still having those conversations. And so while we may not talk about kings and kingdoms much anymore, we're having a conversation every day about the same conversation that's happening in this passage with Pilate and with Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Who do you say you are? And so this, my friends, I would suggest is one of, if not the, central themes of the Jesus story, kings and kingdoms. So three questions for us this morning. Who rules the world? How is this kingdom secured? And what does the kingdom require? So first, in the spirit of International Women's Day, which was just on March 8th, who rules the world? <laughs> Who's going to run this mother? Okay, that's a Beyonce quote for those of you who are like, what is happening around here? Who rules the world, girls? Who rules the I watched the video last night and prepped for this sermon. Who rules the world? Which may seem like a giant question that nobody's interested in talking about, but I think we actually are. Jesus gets hung on a Roman cross because he and those around him claimed that Jesus was Lord. Now, Lord is, is an interesting word. It's a title, actually. In Greek, that's the language of the New Testament. The word is kurios, and that, the word kurios, which translates into Lord, or we get translated into Lord, means ruler at its most basic level. And it was reserved for social superiors in the ancient world, uh, mostly kings and emperors. And so by the time Jesus rolls around, the Roman Empire is in power and the Caesars of Rome are called the Lord. So people would commonly go around and say, Caesar is Lord. Or, and, and these Caesars who are Lord are the sons of God because there was this idea that these were divine beings and so Tiberius, who was the emperor when Jesus was around, was referred to as the son of God. Caesar is Lord, would have been commonplace. And so, here's the thing. We've been arguing about who rules the world for millennia, for thousands of years. Another way to say this is, who's the world's true Lord? Who's the world's true leader or ruler? Who has the power and the authority to govern the affairs of the cosmos, of the world, the globe, this round ball hurling through space that we inhabit. Who has the power and the authority to say, I'm the king or I'm the ruler of that? This conversation between Jesus and Pilate, it's about the king of the Jews, yes. It's about particular things happening in occupied Palestine by the Romans. So it's about the Romans and the Jews, but it's also about bigger things. I would say cosmic things, like ultimate reality things, the ground of being things. It's a conversation about who or what is at the source. Like, what's the energy, the life, the breath, the juice and the joints of the motion of life? Like, what drives it all? Who rules the world? Who is the Lord? And the Bible, the gospel writers, and the Bible, the, the, the New Testament writers specifically, are making the claim that this Jesus, who dies on a cross in a few weeks as we celebrate Easter and resurrection, this Jesus is in fact the answer to that question. So who rules the world may seem like a really far off idea that some people talk about in theology class, but I would suggest to you that as we listen to the news and talk about the things that matter most in our cultural day-to-day -day lives, the question behind the question is, who has the power, who has the control, who has the security, who can lead us forward into life and hope and justice 
and a future that brings life and hope and justice for all? That's the question. And the Bible seems to, be have, seems to have an answer for that, and it's this Jesus. Now, this, um, Jesus says that his kingdom, the kingdom that he brings, is not of this world, which leads to a second question I want to explore. How is a kingdom secured? How does a kingdom come into being? How is it, how is it uh, uh, acquired and held up? In verse 33, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And in verse 36, Jesus in the end says, my kingdom, the one I'm bringing, the one I'm about, the one I represent, is not of this world. Making the claim that in fact he is a king, but his kingdom is not a kingdom that the world recognizes or understands. The kingdom Jesus brings is qualitatively different in that sense, that it's secured by other means. I mean, think about this. All the kingdoms of the world that I mentioned earlier are ones that maybe you thought about that I didn't. How did they come into being? Power. Violence. Find me one that wasn't secured by war and military efforts. Like, and you don't need to go any further than like a Minnesota um, elementary school playground with a snow pile for, to watch this happen. We call it King of the Mountain. You ever watch this take place, right? Kids go out there and somebody goes up on top of the mountain and says, I'm the king of the mountain or the queen of the mountain. I always love it when a gal gets up there and is like, bring it on! And so what happens is somebody says, no, you're not, and they climb up the pile of snow, also known as the mountain, and they, with power and physical might, challenge the person who's on top of the mountain, and they say, no, you're not the king or the queen, I'm the king or the queen, and they physically remove that person and secure the top of the mountain, right? This is base-level elementary school behavior just played out with guns and bombs and billion-dollar budgets. So we do talk about this, and we do care about it. How is this kingdom secured? And what Jesus says is, my kingdom, the one I'm bringing, is secured in a totally different fashion. And the world thinks it's foolishness. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's fundamentally different. And it's driven by and secured by different means. If all the other kingdoms of the world are secured by power and might and domination, Jesus comes and he brings a kingdom that represents and is secured by sacrificial love for your enemy. How is the kingdom of God brought into being? How is it ushered into the world? By sacrifice and by love. I mean, imagine if Alexander the Great marches into one of the great cities and is like, this empire is built on sacrifice and love. Nobody ever does that because we don't believe it works. And yet, Jesus seems to call his followers to a different kind of kingdom that's secured with different means, and then to act in kind. To be representatives, to be ambassadors of, to be the people who carry this message out into the world, which should sound a little odd at times. Because it's driven by sacrifice and love, not power and domination and violence and war. It's a different kind of kingdom, which brings me to a third question. If the first two ideas or questions highlight the differences that Jesus is the world's true Lord, it's, that's the claim the Gospels are making, and this, this kingdom is secured by a different means, this last question is actually the way in which all kingdoms ask the same question. What does a kingdom require? And I would argue that every kingdom, no matter what kingdom we're talking about, if it's a spiritual idea, if it's a political idea, they all ask the same thing in its ultimate allegiance. 
I was at a uh, kids' sports thing the other day. You know that moment when um, they, everyone's asked in the stands to rise and some person, some, like, helpless volunteer is over there with a microphone sticking it in front of a boombox speaker. Do you, are you all with me right now? You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, there's feedback and you can't hear anything, at which point I'm like, we can do this better. It's not that hard. But that would require me to like get involved and volunteer my time, which I did say to the music teacher last time I was at the concert, like, if you need any help with sound, I'd be glad to help. You know what I mean? <laughs> so the lady's down there and, and she's like, trying to get this stupid thing to work for the national anthem. Everybody's standing and waiting and in a panicked moment to offer something of patriotism because she says, let's all, let's all pledge allegiance to the flag because she couldn't get the, the national anthem to work. So here's a room full of adults and we're standing there pledging allegiance to the flag. Now, gang, I want you to listen very, very carefully to what I'm about to say. Um... I've said this before and I'll say it again. I am so grateful for the freedoms that we are afforded in the country that we live in to gather in this place without fear of being persecuted by the government. I am grateful that we can speak freely about the things that matter most to us most of the time, depending on who you are and where you are. I'm glad, like so grateful that we can, we can even gather to protest things that we don't think are just. I'm so grateful for those things. So don't hear me saying anything I'm not saying. I'm not saying that uh, we should all hate the country that we live in or that we're not for the things that this country is about. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that Jesus stands resolute and says, this kingdom requires ultimate allegiance. So here I am standing in the gym with my hand over my heart and I have an existential crisis as a critical thinking pastor. And I'm like, do I pledge my allegiance to this flag? And if I'm being totally honest with you, the answer to that question is no, I do not. I don't pledge allegiance to a flag or a democracy or a president or a king or a kingdom other than the one of Jesus the Christ, the crucified, resurrected Messiah, the true Lord of the world, because that's what kingdoms ask of you. And when we bow a knee to any other kingdom, it, it, you can't bow more than one knee, like when you do that, right? There's only one. I mean, I suppose you could do two, but you're still doing the, you're, you're in the same spot, <laughs> right? It, you can't divide yourself up and say, I'm for this and this and this ultimately. It's only like one thing. And actually, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, it's interesting that Jesus and the Gospels are all about like breaking down barriers and making it open for everybody and, and, and men and women. And so we still use this patriarchal idea of a kingdom. What if we called it a kingdom? Which I was like, snaps, that's hot. <laughs> a kingdom that Jesus calls all humanity into, men, women, slaves, free, everybody. And he says, ultimate allegiance to this kingdom, this brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity, which is built on and is about sacrificial love that leads all the way to death sometimes, but oh, don't stop there because resurrection's coming. Will you follow me? And the question that we have to wrestle with every day when we wake up and we watch the news and we do our lives is, do we believe this? Like, do you believe that this crazy guy who says that the kingdom, kingdom, excuse me, that I'm coming to bring 
is rooted in sacrificial love for your enemy. And when we do that, all the way to death, what happens is not death and darkness, but actually life and new life and seeds of hope and justice and forgiveness and mercy flood the world like a river, like a torrent. It comes raining down. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? The psalmist says, some trust in chariots, which is an ancient way of saying some trust in their military and their bombs and their war and their guns and their ammo and their tanks and their F-16s or whatever else or your capitalism. Some trust in that, but we trust in the name of God, this resurrected, crucified and resurrected Messiah, the suffering servant who comes and lays down his life for the sake of all, any and all, those who persecute him, those who mock him, those who flog him, those who wish that he wasn't on the cross, everybody. So the question is, what do you trust in? Every day, we're asked to pledge allegiance to all kinds of things, systems, powers, political ideologies, businesses, capitalism, any number of things. And Jesus just stands here and says, gang, I'm telling you the truth. Home is this way, and it's by way of the cross which looks like the end, and it looks like death, and it looks like no hope for everybody, but actually, just hold tight. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Are you the king of the Jews? It's not just a question about Palestine and Rome. It's a question about the whole thing. This is the kind of kingdom that asks us to act in kind and sends us feeding hungry kids at a school down the block. It's the kind of kingdom that inspires people to be involved in the plight of refugees and asylum seekers while they try to navigate how to be whole again. It's the kind of kingdom that asks you and I to stand for and work with people who are working for justice in the most vulnerable places with the most vulnerable people. It's the kind of kingdom that says you should run a marathon to help kids get clean water. So there's all kinds of ways that we participate and we respond to this kingdom. The question is, today, right now, in this moment, what is the Spirit of God asking you to do? And I can't answer that. I can only, you know, they always say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So friends, here it is. What I believe to be the truth about the resurrected Messiah, Jesus the Christ, and the kingdom that he comes to bring. And so, what say you? Pray with me if you will. God, this morning we want to think about the things that matter the most. We don't have a lot of time and our days get really busy and full of things and so we are taking this moment this morning to consider the things that matter the most. Who rules the world? What is the juice? What is the breath, the energy that drives it all? What is that? Is it that which Jesus makes known? And if it is, what does that mean? And so Holy Spirit, in these next few moments of silence, as we consider what that means and how we're to orient and organize our lives, I pray that you would speak that the still small voice that often sounds like our own, sometimes it doesn't, but often it does, that whispers, maybe you should run a marathon. Or maybe you should get involved in this thing. So Holy Spirit, we entrust ourselves to you for these next few moments of silence. Speak to us, we pray. Guide us to truth.
My friends, as you go, don't forget that Jesus stands resolute and says, home is this way, and you're invited. And this kingdom is about reconciliation and about the renewal and restoration of all things that God has made and called good. And you're invited. So participate with your lives, with your bodies as a sacrifice, your act of worship, your act of allegiance to this kingdom. So maybe that means running a marathon for the first time. Maybe it means something else. Whatever that is, I'd invite you to consider it. And if you want to run a marathon, right over here, as soon as I say goodnight or goodbye or whatever I say, after the gathering, here's what I say. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said with joy in their hearts. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace. Go make the world a better place. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.